As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode. It has been such a long time, but all things considered, I'm sure you all understand. Um, joining me today, I am super excited to have Barnaby Rain. Many of you would have seen him on social media, in the streets, doing the good work that is necessary in this time. And joining me once again is a friend of the show, my co-host, Christian. So let's just go straight into it. Christian, fire away. For sure. So it's a pleasure to have you, Barnaby. My first question is regarding anti-Semitism and the history of anti-Semitism. So in the current moment, with a lot of people supporting Palestinian liberation, supporting Palestinian self-determination, a lot of that support has been charged with, the, with anti-Semitism. So could you give a little bit more history on what the history of anti-Semitism and its relationship to Zionism? Sure. So I think there's a kind of double-edged or, or, or contradictory relation going on here. Because on the one hand, anti-Semitism, that term which is codified in German anti-Semitismus in the late 19th century, at a moment of lurid Orientalism, at the moment of, of, of panic about the Arab world um, and, 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 and intrigue in the Arab world, as we read in, you know, in, in Edward Said's famous account, anti-Semitism identified Jews as Semites, that is to say, as people like Arabs, North Africans as people who are kind of liminally related to Europe. That is to say, they're not, Jews are not Africans who are imagined simply as people without history, uh, famously. Jews are not simply insiders, good Europeans. The terrifying thing about Jews is that we live in the pores of Christian civilization. We, we, we are inside Christian Europe, have been so for hundreds of years, and yet we are somehow outside it. We are, we, are, we are somehow excluded from it, separate from it, have different rules and laws and ways of life and are frequently legally excluded from it, chased out of Britain and, and, and Spain and uh, confined to ghettos in a pale of settlement in Tsarist Russia. Um, so Jews occupy the Semite, the Semitic position, is something like the position that African-Americans occupy in the United States. And there's, of course, a long history of of, of that analogy being made. It's something like the position that migrant populations occupy now in Europe. That is to say, people who are identified as being outsiders, but who are not simply total outsiders, who have another place to go. Of course, black people in America deprived, you know, social death deprived of, of, a, of a, an, an origin story and a place to go. So you're, you're located within this society, but the society is also predicated on your exclusion. The society is predicated both on your inclusion, it needs you, it needs your black labor first as slaves and so on, it needs your, your, uh, your, your Jewish labor, which plays a certain role in the social structure but it's also predicated on, on fearing you and excluding you. One could also make an analogy with the position of, uh, of Roma people, gypsies and travellers um, in, in European history as well. That's what the identification of Jews as Semites does. And it's interesting that it, that it, um, it analogises Jews to Arabs. Karl Marx was called the Moor. That is to say, he was identified by people as sort of a bit North African uh, because of his dark Jewish colouring. And so in one sense, Zionism is a, a revolt against anti-Semitism by being a revolt against Semitism. So it begins... In, in its formal political structure with the character of Theodore Herzl, who had been an assimilationist, who had wanted Jews to stop getting circumcised, to give up their mark of distinctness and become good French and German citizens. 
And Herzl's turn to Zionism is, in my mind, a kind of fulfillment rather than a turn away from his assimilationism. That is to say, he recognizes that to really become good Europeans, here's the irony, Jews had to leave Europe. Because the only way that Jews could become good Europeans like Frenchmen and Germans was by having what Frenchmen and Germans constitutively had, which is a nation state, ideally an imperial or a colonial. Uh, nation state, so that Jews would cease to be these people suspended outside the world of nation, which to many of us is so inspirational about the Jewish condition. Of course, it's been a brutal, uh, a brutal condition, but but this promise of being outside nationhood, traversing borders, the rootless cosmopolitans, as Stalin and David Ben-Gurion insultingly called us, but I think it's a title we should claim with pride. Herzl's project was to un- undermine that, to undo that condition, to say, we want Jews to be just like the French and the Germans and the Brits, that that means they have to have a nation state and they have to stop being scholars and, and, and yeshiva brokers and, uh, and, and become good farmers and settlers and soldiers. So to that degree, Zionism was an attempt at a throwing off of the caste, of the skin of the Jewish condition, an attempt to reject the Semitism that anti-Semites identified with Jews and to render Jews white instead. And so when, if you think about Bibi Netanyahu's career as a, as a pseudo-scholar of terrorism, going right back to the 1980s, editing volumes on terrorism, his framing was very much, I come to represent white civilization against the savage hordes and to tell you in America that you may be complacent, but we're on the frontier of the savage hordes in Palestine. And so we know quite how brutal you have to be in dealing with them to defend the white European Western civilization that you rely on too. And that's often the position of the settler colony in, in its relation uh, to, to, to wider imperialism, right? You get complacent, you, you, you soft liberals. We, we really face the savages um, in, in, in the desert. Uh, it was the position that, that the South Africans were also rhetorically occupied. So on the one hand, then, Zionism is an attempt at a rejection of Semitism, at a rejection of a certain kind of, of construction of Jewishness and an attempted assimilation into whiteness. On the other hand, remember I said there's this double-edged dynamic, on the other hand, the, the, the imaginary of anti-Semitism, the kind of narrative we tell as Jews about anti-Semitism, is importantly distinctive, I don't say by any means unique, but importantly distinctive among forms of, of, of racialization and racism, in that it has a kind of cyclical historical structure. So if you think about white supremacy in the United States, to return to that example, we think of white supremacy as an ideological structure affixed to a material hierarchy, which means that you can undermine the material hierarchy, you can undermine the, 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 the racial wage gap, or you can undermine racialized incarceration, the prison state, and, and in doing so, you, you ebb away at, at white supremacy. You, 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 activist organizers have a clear sense that that means doing work against white supremacy. So you can have a kind of progressivist historical structure in your mind, right? Um, uh, from the moment of, um, of, of, of the kidnapping of, and, and enslaving of people uh, through the resistance, you know, from Nat Turner to Malcolm X, you can tell a story of, of uh, to Black Lives Matter of, of attempted progress. Now there's lots of interruptions and that cycle is not simply progressivist. But the, the, the difference is that the imaginary that we Jews have, going right back to the days of slavery in Egypt, is that our slavery in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, in the Bible, our slavery in Egypt followed Joseph arriving in Egypt, winning great favor and becoming Pharaoh's prime minister. And it was after Jews were so favored that there was a turn against these outsiders. So the cyclical structure, which which extends right through to Jews being welcomed into the kingdom of Poland before they were targeted and harassed. The cyclical structure, which goes right forward to Weimar Germany, where Jews were more successful and prosperous than almost anywhere else in the world before the Nazi counterattack. So the, the cyclical structure says, don't say that you're achieving a level of material security, materially, really, significantly, finally, ultimately undermines 
this problem of, of bigotry, because in fact, the bigotry recurs precisely at the moment that you seem to be doing quite well, where you become the ideal outsiders. And that historical narrative, which has all kinds of, of I think, sort of legitimate basis to it, also can obviously function as a license for a certain sort of paranoia. And it can mean that Zionism understands itself both as entry into whiteness, casting off the skin of a certain form of Jewishness, as outsiderness, becoming white and therefore joining, leaving one coalition of the exploited of the world and joining another coalition of the exploiters of the world. Absolutely, that's there in the self-understanding of Zionism. That explains the kind of alliances that Zionists pursue and, the, and, and their distance from other um, anti-racisms. But at the same time, there remains structuring the paranoia of the Zionist state and of Zionism as an idea, which I think explains the, the level of violence, the grotesque violence we see now in Gaza, there remains a sense of everyone's always coming to get us. And however strong and powerful we are, we're always, we're always about to be um, overthrown. And so that duality, I think, helps to understand the, the, the endurance of the anti-Semitic anxiety alongside the casting off of, of, of Semitism that structures Zionism. Thank you so much for that brilliant answer that, that really laid out a brief history actually and again I think those historical roots remain pertinent in trying to understand our current moment. So then speaking about the anti-Semitic charge and then looking at those on the left today we know we know right now mainstream media the protest demonstrations are called anti-Semitic many on the left have been deemed anti-Semitic and out of a fear of that label they are trying to navigate this space of okay we don't we don't want to be seen as anti-Semitic but also we want to still show full support, what well, some do anyway, for Palestinian liberation. So just some thoughts, since you're, you are an organiser, how do you think we should navigate this terrain? Well, I think we should be less apologetic in the sense that I don't think we should start from a framework that says a certain kind of moderate criticism of the Israeli state might be okay, but anti-Semitism lurks at the extreme. So the, the, the more vociferous you are in your criticism of the Israeli state, the, the, the more uh, you enter into dangers of anti-Semitism. So it might be okay to say, I disagree with Bibi Netanyahu. And look, if I say that, then I'm I stand alongside huge numbers of Israelis who are in the streets protesting against him. But if I say, I want Palestine to be free from the river to the sea, and the vast, vast majority of Israeli Jews will tell me that they understand that as a call for their annihilation. Incidentally, the vast majority of white South Africans understood the call for a non-racial South Africa as a call for their annihilation. These are the paranoids of the settler, the projective paranoids of the settler, who knows only a logic of elimination and exclusion in, in dealing with the other, and so imagines that as the logic that the savage must treat out to them. So I, I think the danger is that we internalise that partly motored by this very dangerous contemporary fad for lived experience, in which we think that experience is itself a kind of transparent window onto truth. So if Jews tell you something is anti-Semitic, it must be. This seems to me very strange because experience is always processed by ideology. If a Jew sees a Palestinian flag and is afraid of it, we should ask why they've been, been made to, to think that way, but shouldn't just take it at face value. Um, but I think there's a problem in some contemporary poli radical politics that we don't do that kind of critical work. And so, so motored by, in part, by this language around lived experience, and in part by a lot of understandable anxiety about what it is to be called a racist by, by people affected by that racism and people, good people on the left don't want to face those charges very, very understandably. We develop this language that says, okay, we can be moderate in our criticism of the Israeli state. We can go so far as the Israeli left will go. But if we go much further, then there's a space called anti-Semitism. I think that whole framework we should reject. We should say instead, there absolutely is a possible anti-Semitic anti-Zionism. It would say the problem of the Israeli state is that it is Jewish. And there's a, and, and the anti-Semitic anti-Zionism would claim that there's a particularly Jewish problem which, which uh, licenses uh, colonization and and, and brutality, some people claim to find sources in the Talmud, and so on and so on. There's another anti-Zionism, which incidentally reflects the 
the experience of the of the colonizer, uh, sorry, the experience of the colonized, who don't object to Zionists for being Jews, but who object to Zionists for being colonizers and taking their land, and which says, in fact, the Jewishness of the Zionist is very, very important to the Zionist, but not important to the colonized, and not important to Western imperialism's support for the Zionist state. They support it not because it's Jewish, but because it's colonial. And so our anti-Zionism understands Zionism in relation to settler colonial projects and imperial projects of the same late 19th century moment in which Zionism emerged, projects from Algeria to South Africa and from the romance of the British Empire in that period. And so we want the dissolution of the Zionist state because we stand in an anti-colonial tradition that opposes the dispossession of some people to make way for settlers. They don't even have to be white. We could see the, the example of Liberia in similar terms. So it, it's not it's just an objective social process. And it might be that the people engaging that objective social process of colonization have themselves had all kinds of brutal experiences, uh, as of course people fleeing the Holocaust did. Settler colonizers often have this ambition relationship to Europe, where they both understand themselves as carriers of European civilization, but also as rejected by it. That was true of the Boers in South Africa. It was true of the pilgrims to, to North America. So we can, we can narrate an objective social process of settler colonization. We can link that settler colonial process, and we do this too little these days, to a global reality of imperialism that, that, that requires settler colonialism as its, or at least uses settler colonialism as its kind of aggressive outposts. 1956, Britain and France want to invade the Suez Canal to secure European colonial access. Now they've got Israel right next to it to, to join them in doing so. So we can link processes of settler colonialism to processes of imperialism without talking at all about the Jewishness of the state. Then we can talk about the Jewishness of the state in terms of, you know, why, why that matters to Zionism, um, as I just did a moment ago. But we can have a very militant and forthright anti-Zionism that certainly has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. In fact, I would go further, and I'll finish on this because I'm sorry I keep ranting at you. I would say that, in fact, the most militant forthright anti-Zionism follows from my understanding of a kind of anti-anti-Semitism. Or let's get rid of all the antis. I just like these days talking about Semitism. There's a lot of opposition to using a hyphen in anti-Semitism because people like the great uh, Holocaust historian Yehuda Bauer say we shouldn't pretend that Semitism exists by putting a hyphen between anti and Semitism. No, Semitism does exist. Semitism is that tradition which the anti-Semites hated most, which was the tradition that Isaac Deutscher talked about as a non-Jewish Jew. The, though I think it can be Jewish Jews as well, which is the tradition of living in the pores of Western civilization, living within it, seeing its violent exclusions, and therefore being especially militant about opposition to that Western civilization, which has at least since the death of Jesus over 2000 years ago been predicated on the violent exclusion of Jews, perhaps you could say from the death of Jesus to the Holocaust when it, when it changed its, um, its nominal orientation to Jews from one of exclusion and, and, and marginalization and annihilation uh, to one of uh, sort of using us as useful props for imperialism in the Middle East still a kind of instrumentalization. Um, so in my view, opposing anti-Semitism involves, my particular tradition of opposing anti-Semitism, involves opposing all of the violence of Western civilization, which was honed against Jews as its foundational others, and then exported and transformed in the exporting, of course, to Africa and South America and Asia. So opposing that foundational violence of Western civilization means reading the Zionist state as a basically Western, basically Goyish, basically kind of uh, European project, very different from the Jewish tradition that I come from from. And it means opposing the state of Israel, just as it means opposing British imperialism and American imperialism and French imperialism and so on. Thank you very much for that analytic and being able to respond to the, uh, to the, the Israeli state properly. But on the issue of violence and the role violence plays in dehumanization or and othering as well, I kind of wanted to bring up a topic that has been touched on in, in previous episodes. And this is actually, it's something that's uh, fairly relevant to things I've, I've seen with regards to 
anti-racist activism with regards to black issues, especially around police brutality. And it's the issue of uh, violence in, in media. And we had Judith Butler on here previously, and I know even Susan Sontag has some similar arguments made in her writings. But one argument is often made that the dehumanization or having image, saturating the media with images of, of people undergoing brutality and violence uh, furthers their dehumanization. And I remember this like distinctly with regards to the police brutality stuff, because, you know, during the various instances of police shootings in the States, you would have people urging not to share videos of uh, Black people being shot by the cops in the, with the argument being that, you know, you're further desensitizing people to the loss of Black life. And even for, you know, someone like Butler, you would say that, uh, that this is, you know, present, preventing someone from being grievable. However, we also had Norman Finkelstein come on here not too long ago, and he wrote a book on Gandhi. And one of the takeaways from his book on Gandhi is that to call people to action, witnessing atrocities of extreme violence is, is what can move them uh, and mobilize them. So I'm kind of curious as what you think about, you know, the current tactics or I'm not even sure if they're really tactics, but the current saturation of Palestinian people uh, experiencing extreme and brutal violence, just atrocious, you know, acts being committed to them by the Israeli state. And what you think about how that's played a role in uh, mobilizing certain people or potentially reifying certain racist dehumanizations of them. I think it's a very good question. I think that there is a, a historical question here about the relationship between humanitarianism and politics. So let me explain what I mean by that. Before we came on the show, when we were just chatting, Mama Ju and I were, were talking about PhD research, about 20th century visions of, of the end of capitalism, the transition to socialism from West Africa to Britain. And we're talking about the difference between a historical moment that I think lasted for much of the 20th century and ended in the 1970s or 80s, in which it seemed sensible and possible for the left, for anti-colonial politics, for feminist politics, for so many different parts of that patchwork of, of emancipatory thinking, to articulate visions of a future of freedom. And we now live in a world in which the cliche goes, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that the discourse around Palestine reflects that shift, which has been a grand historical shift. Because where in the 1970s, solidarity with Palestine focused on, say, links with the PLO and with the possibilities of a liberated Palestine connected, and how hard does this seem to imagine today, connected to the possibilities of a liberated Middle East, the road to Jerusalem runs through Cairo was the PFLP slogan that was widely adopted, where the claim was that wider transformations and the construction of a socialist federation of the Middle East were, were possible. And that wasn't just dreaming. It was it reflected real material dynamics, enormous political projects mobilizing millions of people all over the region. Now we see hospitals blown up and journalists targeted and refugee camps destroyed. And the demand can be in our world of extreme political pessimism. The demand can become a kind of demand for some sort of bare life. We, we want Palestinians to be able to go to hospitals and not to be bombed in those hospitals indeed, when they go to hospitals because they've been bombed elsewhere. We just don't want the hospitals to be bombed. And so you see a kind of rowing back of, of a political horizon from a conception of freedom to a conception of survival. And I think that that 
really that reflects a real material shift around what it's possible to imagine. It, it just isn't the case anymore that Arab dictatorships look, even though we're shortly after the Arab Spring, it isn't the case anymore that Arab dictatorships, which are in a process of normalizing relations with Israel, look really, really easily dislodged by revolutionary processes, though one hopes that in the current dynamic, Saudi normalization with Israel uh, will, will have been put on ice, for example. So it's just not, it's just, it, it, it's a kind of materially grounded estimation that the horizons have shifted. But there is a problem with that shift in the horizon, the deep problem, which is that we reduce Palestinians to people who don't deserve to die, but we don't actually celebrate their agency in seeking freedom and we don't we don't seek for them what we should seek for everyone around the world which is a life lived in dignity not just in safety some minimal kind of safety Rousseau famously said there is peace in a dungeon but that doesn't make it desirable we don't simply want peace we want a particular conception of peace which is the peace that follows not from a kind of stabilized repression but from people being free and and therefore not needing to uh, to, to resist anything because they are free and so the the constant bombardment with images of, 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 of brutal violence, especially the focus on women and children, risks what is both a powerful device in explaining to people the scale of the horror of our world. That is to say, many millions of people all over the world, many millions of people in the West, in the global north, see images of hundreds of thousands of dead children and say, oh, shit. My political leaders in Britain and America and France and Germany and so on are so blasé about the murder of children. How would they feel about my children being murdered, especially if those children are black or brown? So there's a there's a horror at the violence which can function to be clarifying, which can function to, to be only a first step on the road to analysis, which says not simply I'm marching in the streets because I want the carnage to stop, but I'm marching in the streets because I have an understanding that the perpetuation of this carnage speaks to an imperial and a racialized world order, which also allows thousands of people to drown in the Mediterranean, seeking better lives after their countries are economically strangled or, or militarily destroyed by, by Western countries. There's an understanding of Palestine as a kind of signal case in a global hierarchy of racialization in which this extreme carnage speaks to the violence that allows police forces to to uh, continue to lynch men on, on American streets and so on. So to some degree, the violence can be mobilizing, but it's very important that we don't simply reduce Palestinians to people who shouldn't be bombed, but have an understanding of the heroism and courage of their desire to live from the river to the sea in, in a life of freedom that doesn't uh, dispossess anyone else, but uh, that has a vision of a world of equality beyond imperialism and racism. Thank you for that. I wanted to follow up because at the beginning of that response, you started to hint at a different mode of resistance as to the current mode of resistance or what is what is represented as the current mode of Palestinian resistance, uh, you know, often in reference to Hamas. And one of the kind of critiques I've seen actually on the left is that Hamas is, is, is a mode of resistance that is kind of rooted in kind of in religious nationalism. It seeks to implement a, a religious state, which many on the left are against. But, you know, the resistance, as with resistance in a variety of contexts to colonial domination is not, it's, there's not one ideology. There's many groups. There are Palestinian com communists. There's historically been Palestinian communists and socialists and Arab communists, Arab socialists, Arab leftists. Uh, so could you go over that history in a little bit more detail and give an idea to the breadth Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation that is not just Hamas. Yes, yeah, so when the Palestinian Liberation Organization was founded in the early 1960s, it was organized centrally around Fatah, which, was, which began as a party of 
secular Arab nationalist socialism, somewhat connected to the Ba'athist tradition and the Nasserite tradition, and that moment of a kind of third way that we also see in African socialism, for example, um, between pure adherence to the Soviet model and the West. But, but as ever with those third ways, much closer to the Soviet model than to the West, one could also think just globally about the non-aligned movement. So Fatah and the, the, the early development of a distinctly Palestinian nationalist politics has that secular socialist basis, not because people sat around in libraries looking for all the ideas and decided those were the best in a, in a marketplace of ideas, but because that emerged out of the broader regional and global politics of the moment, in which there was optimism, that optimism that has so tragically been lost about the possibility of building a different kind of world. I think actually, for all that the Holocaust is invoked by Zionism, <laughs> the only anti-Zionist reading, the defeat of fascism in Germany in 1945 represented one crucial step in that sense of a progressive arc of history in which ideas about some human beings being less worthwhile than others were being marched out into the dustbin of history. And so fascism had to be defeated everywhere. Lots of fascists didn't disappear. They just went south. They just went to South America and they went to Algeria to help France in its colonial brutality. And they, some of them went to America, of course, to help them fight the Cold War. So fascism had to be defeated as the hard edge of, of, of hierarchical thinking about the world. And that meant that also patriarchy had to be defeated and colonialism and imperialism and racism and capitalism had to be defeated because these are all forms of rendering some people's lives more bearable than others on a hierarchical basis. So that was the moment in which a kind of secular socialist politics could emerge connected to an anti-colonial politics, which meant that it wasn't simply a kind of stubborn adherence to the Soviet Union, but a distinctly nationalist framing uh, where, where the nation is not taken as an exclusionary unit, but as, uh, as, um, as the, the organizing principle uh, for a political community against, against colonial and imperial power. That's, that's the mid 20th century, 1960s moment in so many places. We then find the development in the radicalizing 1960s of more communist and Maoist forms of, of, of resistance. The move from the Arab nationalist movement under George Habash to becoming the popular front for the liberation of Palestine, the open embrace of Marxism, democratic front for the liberation of Palestine is a more kind of pro-Chinese split. So what you saw in the, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s was a early, 90, up to the early 1980s, was a, palace, a tapestry of Palestinian politics organized around the various, the various languages of the left that organized anti-colonial and anti-capitalist politics, the politics of the oppressed and exploited all over the world, from Europe to, 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 to the majority of the world. And then it started to change in, in, in Palestine at the same moment that it started to change elsewhere. I mean, the Iranian revolution of 1979 is often taken as an important turning point in, in that you have a, a revolution against a largely Western-backed um, autocracy taking on Islamic colours after, of course, Iran had been a centre of an enormous socialist and communist project and a, and a kind of secular, softly socialist, uh, nationalist project under Mossadegh, which was defeated by imperialism, destroyed. And of course, that 1979 revolution in Iran comes just six years after the crushing of, um, of, a, of a socialist project in Chile by a coup that, that's now often seen, that was often seen at the time as the kind of first moment of the turning back of this tide of optimism. So in that destruction, demolition of the left, the destruction and demolition of, you know, Nasser's hope in a United Arab Republic incorporating Egypt and Syria and so on, various different forms of the left, some of which I would like more than others, but, but each of these different forms of, of secular nationalism, of uh, whereas I've explained nationalism is, 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 is a kind of civic and, and relatively inclusive concept, though it takes different forms in different places, a socialist project, in the destruction of that project, religion often arose as an alternative kind of organizing principle for politics. And one could say so much about why it's more compelling in that moment of, of the defeat of the left. 
But importantly, it was left recently to the Financial Times, that honest chronicler of bourgeois opinion, to point out that Hamas is, as they said, less like ISIS and more like the Viet Cong. That is to say, we can get far too carried away in the West. And there's a lot of racism in this, right? We're we're scared of of Muslims, um, and we're certainly scared of Muslims with guns. One can get then carried away with a kind of ideological box ticking that wants to place people in, 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 in categories based on whether they say Allahu Akbar or not, where in fact, of course, And and so now the state of Israel is very fond of claiming that Hamas is like ISIS. Hamas is not. There's a big, wide range of Islamic groups around the world that range from ISIS to the NATO member Turkish state, which is nominally an Islamist party, and which fights ISIS. Hamas is not a jihadi group that recruits people from all over the world to go and set off random attacks whose only purpose is to terrify a West that they want to adopt Sharia law. That's just not the makeup of Hamas. And so talking about them as Islamic in order to analogize them to Al-Qaeda or to ISIS is just useless. Um, Hamas obviously sits in the tradition of national liberation resistance movements, which is not to say you have to like it, but that is obviously the political tradition from which it, the broad political tradition from which it comes. And if you read the Hamas statements, that's obviously the political tradition they evoke. Indeed, their founding charter was revised a few years ago in order precisely to stress this point. Um, And indeed, even stresses we fight Zionists because they're Zionists, not because they're Jews. So although the religious inflection is crucially important and you have to understand its ascendancy in the context of the defeats of the secular left, a set of defeats from global defeats where the the loss of the Soviet Union meant that leftist forces didn't have the kind of funding base that they'd had and support base, where the Oslo process, where the Fatah secular leadership, though the PF and DF and others condemned it, but where the secular leadership of the PLO went along with a peace process that turned out to be totally doomed in terms of hopes of of a Palestinian state coming out of it. You can trace those defeats and the rise of Hamas in light of them. The the rise of corruption in Fatah is crucial to the rise of Hamas. And Islamic languages for charity and and anti-corruption and and, and religious purity as, as powerful to people in that moment of despair. You can trace all of those things without then saying Islam equals Al-Qaeda, Islamism equals Al-Qaeda, and losing the sense that although there's an Islamic inflection, this remains part of a broad tradition of national liberation politics that therefore has a clear connection to those 1960s, 70s languages of anti-colonialism. Thank you so much for that. And I think you've brilliantly spoken to the left's inability to understand or to interpret struggles in their context on their own terms. So, for example, I mean, they have a problem many in the left have this, you know, the the spectre of the war of terror, what is done in the imagination or the imaginaries of people ha- comes to speak to, okay, well, you see things like, well, I mean, I'm not really down for this religious resistance, but, you know, since the left got decimated in these areas, it's best that we have right now, failing to see that, no, it, whilst it's not purely a religious movement, the religious inflection, as you said, cannot just be ignored. So thank you for that. I'm someone who's not shy of saying names, <laughs> and I know you're not either. Oh, dear, so you're about to get me in trouble. To... <laughs> yeah. You went on Novara Media and you spoke to believe, was it Michael Walker, I believe, was it? Yeah. It and was, then yeah. you spoke about the left and their, in my opinion, dismal and poor response to this moment. And I'm going to speak specifically about Aaron Bastani, actually, because he went and amplified the women who were wearing paragliders and you know they've now been charging terrorist offenses so i wanted to speak about just your assessment of how the left not just aaron obviously but how the left the western left more particularly have responded to this moment and what are your thoughts well i think we ought to ask ourselves who we're trying to speak to and who we're trying to speak for so and i think we ought to be serious about our basic political analysis of of, of our enemies, which is to say, 
we in Britain, I'm speaking to you from Britain, I've sometimes lived in, in, in America. So we in places like Britain and America live in the old core of imperial power where so many massacres were plotted and not just individual massacres, but processes of accumulation that enriched these places were organized through the racialized dispossession of others. And that power is, uh, is wielded in the continued defense of those global hierarchies. So it means that in British schools right now, there is an offensive by the state with letters from the education, the Secretary of State for Education to, to school heads and uh, prevent counter-extremism program present in schools and fake kind of NGOs like Solutions Not Sides and Roots brought into schools with Muslim students, all to try to quash a possible anti-colonial politics from, especially from kids of, of parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who have some experience of colonial power um, and who therefore might have a politics of anti-colonial freedom. That repressive drive is very general to the West. We've seen, just to give you a few examples, we've seen the Israeli flag emblazoned across Downing Street in Britain and then Palestinian flags removed uh, from an East London uh, neighbourhood in Whitechapel, particularly associated with a large Muslim community. We've seen the leading, one of the leading new Israeli historians, Avi Schleim, have a lecture cancelled at Liverpool Hope University because they thought it might be too anti-Israel. We've seen uh, Palestinian literature festivals and Palestinian authors have their events cancelled. We've seen, of course, beginning in France and spreading to Germany and now pushing in Britain, the attempt to ban pro-Palestine demonstrations. And I think we should have a political analysis of what's going on there. I think it's a very interesting process. I mean, it's a horrible process, but a very interesting one, which is to say it's about both the defense of imperial power and its allegiances and a worry that the multiracial urban working class, or some people might say these days surplus populations, represent the kind of core of a dangerous destabilizing threat to neocolonial, neoliberal power in a moment of its general crisis. That is to say, we're in a moment of the crisis of American unipolar hegemony. We're in a long crisis of neoliberalism since 2008, in which there have been various kind of interregnums, a populist interregnum, a left populist interregnum. You know, they've got Trump and you've had on one, on one hand and you've had Syriza and Corbyn on another. So there have been various attempts to kind of patch up this crisis of, of both the neoliberal order and now people are beginning to realize the, the imperial order. And in that crisis, poor black and brown people in urban centers are identified as at the sharp end of possibly radicalizing politics in response to that condition. People who can't pay high rents often in British cities, who are seeing their wages stagnate in the face of inflation, and who might come from places that have experience and, and who face state violence as well. So they face both the violence of capitalist power and of the police and so on. And they might come from places or have traditions to tap into that talk of a very bold conception of freedom. And so I think it's that worry about that kind of demographic that causes this repressive drive. So if you have that analysis, then you can say, what do I want to do politically? Well, I want to be part of, in some sense, coalitions of those people who I think uh, represent the hope of a certain kind of freedom. And I want to speak for them. And I'm aware that the political mainstream in denigrating those people from those places, not just Muslim communities, actually, but people from the vast majority of the world, uh, especially working class, multiracial working classes in our, uh, in our Western urban centres. You might say these are the heirs to the tradition of Semitism that I was talking about earlier, the excluded and included. Our societies require their labor, but, but also require their domination and exclusion and, and paranoia about them. This is the position of Jews for centuries in Europe. That's why I think Jews should understand this. We understand that when the mainstream panics about them, 
though it will develop as compelling a language as it can for panicking about them, it won't say we're worried about black and brown people destabilizing our neoliberal and neocolonial order. It will say they're terrorists. It will find ways of saying they're barbarian savages that don't literally say they're barbarian savages, though sometimes they do. Sometimes they say they're a mob and so on. They're hate marches that we've heard in Britain, people calling for a ceasefire, a hate marches. Um, so we should have an analysis, an understanding of where that repressive drive comes from. And so we should definitely never tap into that repressive drive or be sort of sympathetic or supportive of it. And, and I, you, can be, you can tap into it if you, if you think that gaining some kind of acceptance from the mainstream is a neutral process that there's a kind of sensible mainstream that we can talk to you know i'm i'm enough of an old-fashioned marxist that i think that there's such a thing as class power and if 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 people who wield class power who represent class power tell you that a certain set of ideas are unacceptable we should at least critically probe why they say that and we shouldn't join in with witch hunts against people even if sometimes we think that people we, we disagree with people with things that people do uh, who are from those targeted communities even if, you know even if we sometimes think that palestinians organizing in britain for palestinian freedom have made a tactically silly decision or a strategically silly decision or a decision we disagree with on principle we should understand that the state focusing on that and piling on it and, and piling into it has nothing to do with anything other than um furthering the debasement and colonization of palestinians Thank you so much for that. I'm wary of the time, but this has been an absolutely brilliant conversation. I implore people to keep up with the work of Barnaby. I will leave his socials in this episode description. Until next time, peace out. Thank you once again.